And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Van Jones is a, an activist, uh, a writer, uh, a commentator, uh, known to viewers of CNN and to people across this country for a variety of things, including bridging the gap between left and right and trying to shine a light in places where more understanding is needed. And so it seemed fitting to sit down with him the day after one of the most historic elections in American history to sort out exactly what happened and where we go from here. Van Jones, my friend, my colleague, normally listeners of this podcast know that I like to talk to people about their lives and their path, and I want, and yours is extraordinary. I mean, yours is in, an incredible inspiration, but uh, I want to just defer that for a couple of minutes and back into it, yeah. because we speak at a uh, momentous time in American history. You and I have sat together on a set for a year and a half talking about this election, and in a sense... I think we both saw a wave coming, but uh, at least I didn't. You were ahead of the curve. I, I didn't uh, really think that it would wash up on shore quite the way it did. It did. It did. And now we have uh, uh, President Donald Trump. So tell me why you think that is. What are its implications and how should people react to that? Well, um, I think that across the Western democracies, we are expecting uh, people to absorb an awful lot of change, uh, especially white working and middle classes. Um, uh, demographically, we're expecting them to absorb a lot of change as, you know, frankly, they have fewer kids and they're, uh, they're bringing in you know, people from other parts of the world, Africa, Asia, Latin America. Um, a lot of change economically, technologically, geopolitically, and change is hard. And everybody doesn't do change well. Some people in, in your family, your workplace, and something changes, they say, oh, great. Other people, they hang on. Like, hey, wait, you know, the two-year plan said this thing. What are you doing? And so we have, you know, what I sometimes call a white lash, um, a backlash from white workers, from, from, from uh, struggling communities of white people who feel both the economic pinch, but also some cultural anxieties. And that has shown itself throughout the West. Brexit, in some ways, was an expression mm -hmm. of that. Um, you see the rise of these sort of um, populist, xenophobic, nativist parties throughout the West. And now we have this. And then people sometimes get frustrated when they hear that because, oh, well, you're just saying we're all racist. No, that's not what I'm saying. There is a legitimate anti-elitism. There's some economic populism. But it's marbled often with this other stuff that is um, very, very uh, um, frightening, I think, for a lot of folks. And, you know, it's painful. I mean, I've got staff members uh, in California who were, you know, breaking down, crying on yeah. the staff call. I have Muslim friends, you know, who literally said, uh, you know, should we leave the country? Um, will there be internment camps? I said, no, no, we have a constitution, we have courts. Well, you had that before, and you interned the Japanese. I, I think that we should prepare to leave now. I mean, you know, it's yes. serious, you know, real, real fear. You and I were talking beforehand, and, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in this process of democracy, as flawed as it is, because people are flawed. Um, but it seems to me that there are two ways that you uh, confront Moments like this, if you don't like the result, and we should also, I think, note that people, if the result had been the other way, there would be people crying and bemoaning it in other parts of the country yes. uh, from their perspective. And I think that's part of the problem here is that we're we're like shaking fists at each other across this chasm, and we don't really hear each other or understand. Uh, each other, setting aside the racism and xenophobic, uh, xenophobic views and sex, whatever. But the things you mention are profound, and they're expressed. You know, why is it that we have a 
that we have this drug epidemic in some of these communities, just as we do in some inner city communities. You know, I mean, there's something going on out there. There's a lot of pain out there. And um, uh, right at the end of the campaign, I started to get very worried about the day after, about, you know, everybody talks about Wednesday, about Tuesday, the day of the vote. I started worrying about Wednesday, what was going to happen. My assumption being that Hillary Clinton would be elected president, and then you would have 50, 60 million voters, overwhelmingly white voters, who would feel badly about that outcome and what would happen. So I literally went to Pennsylvania, went to Gettysburg the day after Trump was there, and met with Trump voters in their homes, not just at a rally where we're yelling at each other, sitting in the home, listening, talking. Um, we shot a couple episodes, three episodes called The Messy Truth. The Messy Truth. It's on my Facebook page. Got two million views um, over the course of a weekend with no promotion. Because we have been talking about each other, not talking to each other. And it turns out that when, when we talk to each other, there are tremendous differences. But it, there, it's, it doesn't have to be as inflamed. I mean, look, I love democracy for one reason. I don't have to agree with you. Right. Dictatorship, I have to agree. You have to agree. We all have to agree. You know, D Democracy, nobody has to agree. That's the whole point. I love that. But the question is, you can get to a level where you go from constructive disagreement, where you're working to try to come up with the best answer, and maybe you're more market-oriented, and I might be more government-oriented, and we come up with some public-private partnership, and because of that disagreement, we come up with a better answer, constructive disagreement, as opposed to destructive disagreement, where there's no point ever, nobody's even trying to find the right answer. They're just trying to bludgeon the other side, um, and you wind up not with opposition parties, but with obstruction parties. And, you know, where gridlock is actually the goal. That disserves everybody and then can open the door to all kinds of bad stuff as people begin to lose faith in institutions and sometimes in democracy itself. Yeah. And so uh, I agree with you. I am a big, I am a, 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 a radical Democrat, small d. I believe in participation. Um, and my big concern now is that you have not just two Americas economically, but you have two Americas increasingly culturally. Yes. And when you and then that can curdle into a kind of tribalism. And once you have tribalisms in your country and you're not all striving toward that one goal, uh, it can become really messy. Well, this is a this is a consequence. Uh, you know, one of my concerns is that technology including communications technology churns at such a fast rate now yeah. that we 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 don't have we don't have the capacity, it seems, to get our arms around the social implications of it. And, uh, you know, now we have, a, we have a media environment in which, on the one hand, you have a multiplicity of sources of information which is positive, but people also have the ability, which many seize on, to, 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 to seek out those outlets that affirm their views instead and, of inform their views. And you know what the worst thing is? I am so guilty of that. And I try not to be. I used to pride myself. Oh, I listen to Rush Limbaugh. I watch Fox. But actually now you can kind of track what you're doing. And, you know, I look at the cable. And, you know, when you hit last and you kind of see what uh, it's CNN, uh, PBS. MSNBC, way down the line, Fox, yeah. because I myself am participating in that whole thing. That yeah, whole I, was in, I was in my hotel the other day, and for whatever reason, my the television was broken, and I could get Fox, but not the others, and um, uh, it was good. It was good to hear what was being discussed there, but I, you know, I, I work with young people as you do. I know you travel across the country speaking to young people all the time, and I do at the Institute of Politics. Um, my concern hearing from these young people today, including some of my own family, is that their reaction is, uh, well, I've had it with this. I'm not going to participate anymore. It seems to me the appropriate responses, you know what, this stuff matters. It matters a lot. Uh, there are implications to this. There is going to be a new Supreme Court as a result of this election, and it's going to take the country and the law in a profoundly different direction, potentially. Mitch McConnell announced as we speak and record this today that the first order of business will be to repeal Obamacare for 
Uh, 20 million people. And that is that is being faithful to those who voted for Donald Trump. There are 20 million people who have health care today because of the Affordable Care Act. Every person with a pre-existing condition, and this is important to me because I have a child with a pre-existing condition, uh, cannot be denied health care today because of the Affordable Care Act. Young people up to the age of 26 can be on their parents' health care and on and on, no lifetime caps. All of this stuff is um, was on the ballot yesterday, and elections matter. They matter a lot, and um, you know I, I love young people. I was a young activist and radical of the first order. I was on the left side of Pluto when I was a young guy. <laughs> uh, I was I was considered a leftist in the Bay Area. You have <laughs> you to gotta work, work hard. You got to work. <laughs> you got to get up early. You got to work weekends. <laughs> So, um, you know, I get it and I, and I love it, but um, there, the, this is not, it's not going to work because um, the consequences of such a large generation, I mean, the millennial generation is bigger than the baby boomers. You know, you have one bad primary outcome you don't like with Bernie Sanders and you drop out of the whole system. I mean, you know, my dad was, you know, they, had, they sick dogs on him. They put fire hoses on him. He didn't quit. Um, you know, uh, his parents and their parents, I'm a ninth generation American. Um, yeah, I'm the first one in my family born with all my rights. I'm a ninth generation American. First one, 1968, born with all my rights. None of my relatives gave up. They fought every day. So, you you know, you like one guy and, and that person doesn't get, and now you're just going to walk away from America, walk away from any engagement. I just think, you know, it's, uh, I tell young people all the time, that's crap. That's just a bunch of crap. And you can't do that, and it's it's embarrassing. You're embarrassing yourselves if you're if you're that weak a generation. You can't take one bad outcome in an election without quitting. Yeah, it's it, it's important. You know, you mentioned. I want to get into your story, um, but I when I talk about why I'm a believer in all of this, uh, I often talk about this woman Jessie Berry who raised me. She was an African American woman uh, who. Uh, took care of me when my mom was at work and she came up from South Carolina no formal education and she took me when I was five years old to see John F. Kennedy who was campaigning in New York uh, 10 days be- or 12 days before the election in 1960 which tells you how long ago that was when a Democrat was campaigning in New York 12 days before the election <laughs> but um, she took me there because she thought it was important for me to see, she, and she some I knew she 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 believed that somehow this young man might do something positive <laughs> to affect her life and the lives of other people. And of course, he didn't live to see the passage of the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, but <laughs> they very much were passed in the spirit of his life. And um, and she could never have imagined this woman who would have died trying to exercise her right to vote potentially. Uh, could not have imagined that we'd have an African-American president, that I would be working for him. And, you know, it just, it always reminds me yeah. of the, the president likes to quote Dr. King about the, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But it only bends if we grab it right. and try and bend it. Well, I think, I think one of the things um, for the younger people, I think they, they feel... Um, Maybe I'm manipulated or talked down to sometimes when I go off on these little tangents about the civil rights movement. Um, but I do think that, it's, that history matters. And I also think that a lot of the stuff that they're suffering through, um, you know, they're very concerned about criminal justice. They're very concerned about um, police reform. They're very concerned about immigration. They're very concerned about LGBT. They're very concerned about climate. All these very present tense issues are um, on the ballot all the time. Um, you know, yeah, but it's, it, I was born in '68. Uh, it was the year they killed Dr. King, and the year they killed Bobby Kennedy. It was the year they they beat up those young kids in Chicago who were trying to stop a war. Um, and in some ways, it was the year they tried to kill hope in America. A lot of people, the generation ahead of me, say '68 was a year of so many disappointments. Most momentous year of my life. Yeah, and and some say in the in the history of the world, like the biggest news year in the history of the world. Well, I was born into that, and when I was five years old, Miss um, Brown, my kindergarten teacher, um, 
shocked me by showing me that grown people could could cry. I didn't. I'd never seen an adult cry. I thought only children cried. And Patrick Carmody, in my class, who was a horrible little bully, but for some reason he raised his hand. He asked Miss Brown, "Who was Bobby Kennedy?" And she started to cry. <laughs> and it just shocked me. And um, some later, I don't know. I got a hold of like a little weekly reader. And it had you know a story about John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, and I'm a little guy, and I and I and I that they were that Bobby was killed in '68, the year I was born, and I somehow just transferred to me that I had to do something. I'm surprised I'm feeling so emotional. <laughs> it's just you know just tired. emotional times. Yeah, but you know five five year old kids are pretty smart, and I just felt like oh this guy was trying to. Make America better, and he got killed yeah. the same year I was born. Yeah. So you know this stuff matters, and I think that for me, you know, I know that we're going to go through a very difficult time, a very chaotic time. Uh, there, you know, the Trump rebellion is a, a a a part of a bunch of rebellions: the Sanders rebellion, the Black Lives Matter rebellion, the Occupy rebellion, the the Tea Party rebellion, in some regard, the Obama rebellion. There's just there's a there's something happening that's hard for us to understand, um, but I do know that you get the future that you fight for eventually. That's the story of my family. Yeah, yeah. I, um, just a, a one point on Bobby, and then I want to talk about your family and your journey, which is incredible. Um, but I was a I was 13 when he was killed. I worked for him when I was nine years old. I was not as a strategist. You know, I was (laughs) handing out leaflets as a little boy. And one of the things about him was that he was fearless. He was also, uh, and he was also someone who uh, who bridged the chasm. Yes, he was someone who could speak to all Americans, and particularly those Americans who felt left out, whether they were white white Americans in Appalachia, mm-hmm. African Americans in the inner city. Cesar one Chavez? Of, one of the mo- Cesar Chavez. And, uh, you know, that's why I so admired him and why we grieved so uh, when, he, when we lost him. But mm-hmm. when Barack Obama ran for president, I said to him, you know, we've got to recreate what we haven't seen in this country for 40 years years, which is that sense of hope and possibility and bridging these chasms and so on, you know. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm actually uh, sad for the president that his presidency ended this quite this way because um, that's the goal to which he – but he'd be the first to say, and we heard him today say it, yeah. this is the system. This, is, this yeah. is our democracy, and we've got to work through it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. President Obama did a, a great job. You know, it's so funny you know, that – 40 years in the wilderness between 68 and 2008, you know, it's sort of uh, biblical in my mind. Yeah. Um, kind of country, you know, trying to find its way back to hope. And that's really, I, I think, you know, I'm a hope and changer, uh, hardcore. Um, you know, I'd never been involved in any electoral anything. I, you know, wait for him to get elected and then go protest him. That was my strategy. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, Obama, you know, kind of brought me into, um, you know, a different relationship with, the whole process and um, you know as you know wound up in the White House for, for six months which was his own kind of crazy experience we'll talk about that yeah but um, you know for me I think uh, you know the, you could if you wanted to be provocative worry about a, a collapse of, of moral leadership within the white community now like, where are the Jack Kemp's where are the Bobby Kennedy's where are those white leaders that are able to reach. And I think often communities of color you know, are very scrutinized. Well, you know, what's going on and why aren't you succeeding and where are your leaders and that kind of thing. And if one of our leaders does something bad, man, it's just like horrible and we all feel terrible. And yet Velcro takes two sides to stick. And, you know, trying to figure out how um, the right kind of folks can reach out to each other was that's partly why I went to yeah. Um, why I went to uh, 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 Gettysburg, Get, yeah. and I found some of the most you know beautiful, amazing you know people, Trump voters, amazing people, um, and yet we're speaking almost completely different languages. Yeah, yeah. Well, I um, uh, I think that 
we should note that Hillary Clinton won a majority of votes in this country and that for Republicans and Democrats, the rec- there ought to be recognition that whether you're comfortable with change or not, change is coming because that is the nature of the demographics of the country. It's the drift of history. And the question is, can we lo- uh, lock arms and march forward together and harness that change in a way that is not convulsive and is constructive or, 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 or not? So I think there are smart people when you say, are there leaders of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, within the white community? Are there, there are leaders within that party who uh, understand that uh, the future mm-hmm. is not in separatism. Yeah. The future is in pluralism. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with uh, Van Jones. So let's talk about you. You, you mentioned uh, a little bit about your growing up experience. Talk about for, for Tennessee, for growing up there, what 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 helped form you? Well, my dad uh, was uh, Willie Anthony Jones. My mother, Loretta Jean Kirkendall Jones. Uh, my father was born in segregation and poverty in 1944 in Memphis, Tennessee. He grew up in Orange Mound, Memphis, which was at the time one of the biggest black ghettos in the country. And um, he joined the military to get out of poverty. Uh, everybody else was running out of the military. My dad ran in. Um, and then um, put himself through college. Uh, did he, where did he serve when he was in the uh, he was uh, He was in the Air Force. Uh, he was in uh, Korea and then briefly in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And um, came back, uh, went to a small black college called Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. On the GI Bill. Exactly, on the GI Bill. Uh, married the college president's daughter, my mom, which because my dad had it like that. And um, uh, and then uh, had me and my twin sister, my my mom and dad, and then my dad put my uh, uh, uncle, uh, his little brother, through college, and then he put a cousin through college, and then he and my mom put me and my sister through college. And what was he doing? He uh, he had been a cop in the military. That was a big part of his personality. He kind of seemed like a cop. Um, and uh, but then he became an educator, became a. Uh, middle school president. The NAACP had to sue my home county for my father to be able to become a middle school principal. It was this kind of like unwritten rule that you could be assistant principal, but you couldn't be principal of these, you know, because we just integrated. And, you know, when you integrated, you had two schools and, well, who's going to be the principal now? You got one school. So you had a bunch of black assistant principals and a bunch of white principals. So the NAACP sued. My dad wound up getting the worst school in our county which he turned around to be one of the best schools in the state, and um, to his great pride. And when he died um, in 2008, lung cancer and emphysema, hard drinker, hard smoker, hard worker, um, the picture that we put on the funeral program was a picture of me graduating from Yale Law School. No, a picture of him the day I graduated from Yale Law School with his hands in the air, uh, just, you know, triumphant. Um, and he told me before I went to Yale, he said, you know, they wouldn't have even let me be a, uh, a yard worker at a school like that, but you're going to go be with those big, fu- those big families' kids. And it was a huge source of pride for him. But my, my dad was also, though, very concerned about egotism and snobbery and elitism because, you know, he was born very poor. And then he winds up marrying a college president's daughter, and suddenly he's caught in that class divide in the black community. Where it's like, well, you know, you're you're uh, two generations. I'm one generation from poverty. You're two, so you're better than me, or I'm worse than you. That whole kind of class, you know, stuff that happens inside of communities. And so he hated any kind of elitism. So before I went to law school, he saw my head getting bigger and bigger. He took me outside, you know, sit, sit there on a carport, and he said, "Let me tell you something, son. There's only two kind of smart people in this world. There's smart people." who take very simple things and make them sound very complicated to try to impress everybody. And there's smart people who take very complicated things and make them sound very simple to try to help everybody. You come back in my house, you better be that second kind of smart guy. Well, uh, that's like wisdom right there. Yeah, That's wisdom. That's Willie Jones. My dad had the best political mind of anybody I've ever met to this day. 
like a lot. I mean, first of all, the black community is politically, as you know, very sophisticated. Financially, not so much. Politically, very sophisticated. <laughs> and um, my dad has a sharp. I mean, he we you know, I'd sit there, we'd be watching CNN. I wish he'd lived to see me on CNN. And he would rip the liberals and the conservatives apart. He had a just nose for BS and nonsense. And then it's just a contempt for the elites um, because he had to deal with it his whole life. And so um, I, I, I really am my father's son in that regard. You know, um, and I'm going to expose myself here, and it may uh, engender some negative reaction, but um, you work with young people and you work in, in communities really uh, under stress. And I come from Chicago, you know, and I always remember um, uh, Barack Obama when he was a state senator telling me that he'd go in sort of in a heartbroken way that he'd go to kindergarten and first grade classes and there'd be these kids and they had a light in their eye and he'd say, what do you want to be? And they'd say, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. I want to... And then he'd go to the middle schools, and that would all be gone. De- gone. Yeah. And um, part of this, um, th- there's so much that one has to contend with in some of these communities. But it strikes me that uh, all of us are benefit from family and from the support of a father like your father. Yeah. And, a, and a lot of these kids, they don't have that. Yeah. One of the tougher conversations that I think we're struggling with is this conversation about fatherhood. I think it's the big hidden topic. Um, a lot of liberal feminists recoil at even the idea that there might be some special role for a father because it seems to be such an insult to what mothers do, such a reification of these gender binaries that they're trying to fight against, and it just you know sits poorly in the mouth. And yet... Uh, there's something that I don't know how to talk about that my father was able to give me that my mother would not have been able to. And there's some relationship I have with my sons. And my wife sees it, and she celebrates it. Um, and we've got to be able to have a sane conversation about both patriarchy and the this horrific oppression of women, which is you know, so omnipresent that we don't even notice it um, all too often without creating the situation where men um, are just in a confused state where if they try to step forward, you know, with even some sense of chivalry, that's considered obnoxious. If they step back too far, then they're deadbeat dads. I mean, there's this, this transition to a more egalitarian gender system, which we're going through, is not without some rug burn and heartburn among good guys who are trying to find a way forward. And I do say that had I not seen in my house every day a strong black man get up every morning, I mean, make the phone calls that he had to make, go to put on a suit and a tie, go to work, you know, come back, sometimes frustrated, um, but taking responsibility for that household and for, for all the kids at his school. I mean, our phone would ring, you know, late at night, Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones. And he took those calls. Um, and he could and he could he could call the judge, he could call the mayor, he could make things happen. Had I not seen that, I don't know who I would be. And uh, I had a grandfather who was a college president at thirty five years old. Those things matter. And um, uh, and I think about them every day. You know, I, I saw the president go uh, speak to kids, uh, particularly young men uh, teenage men, uh, te- young, really still kids, uh, about, uh, the responsibility that comes along with having a child. Mm-hmm. And it was poignant because he didn't have a dad. That's right. He didn't have a dad. And he knows what, he knows the hole that leaves in your heart, that, 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 mm-hmm. that gulf. Um, I think he's going to be doing more of that. I think so. And, and I hope that um, that's not seen in any way as a put down to the moms and the aunties right. and the grandmas who are doing just valiant, valiant work and and producing you know often world class kids. Yeah. And 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 but if you talk to those kids, there is that 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 hole, um, and uh, and it's important, 
I think, for us to find some way to honor everybody. One of the big problems that I believe that we ran into, the buzzsaw we just ran into this week with the election of Donald Trump, is that you do that the liberal imagination now, as it as it has you know, become fashionable, doesn't have a place of honor for heterosexual white guys who are middle aged and vote Republican. They are somehow all the oppressor. They're all the enemy. They're all the other. And they don't feel that way. They feel like they're on the downside of everything economically and culturally and don't know where to turn. And But you never see the NAACP or, or the National Organization of Women or Sierra Club or anybody go and check on those guys. It would be almost laughable. And yet those somebody should have checked on those guys over the past 10, 20, 30 years. And nobody did but a guy named Donald Trump. And now we're mad that people who... I mean, even at a moral level, I don't mean at a practical level, maybe you can't go organize everybody, but even in, at a moral level, when you're talking about your vision for the country and when you're talking about what it is you're trying to achieve, if you, you can't tell a story that includes uplifting, you know, white guys in Indiana and, and coal miners in, in Appalachia, that's not even a part of the poetry. That gets noticed. Yeah. And as a practical matter, if if you are dealing with changes in your economy without regard to what the ramifications of those are going to be for large numbers of people, uh, that that's a failure, you know. And I, I know this was a, you know, Barack Obama started working in the steel mills, uh, you know, uh, where, where there used to be steel mills as a community organizer uh, in Chicago. And he was, you know, in, in Illinois was one of those states that felt the changes but, um, you know, he confronted a, an epic economic crisis that, you know, the thing was to get the economy moving again before you, you know. But we never really, in only small ways, not small ways, but in, in, not in, in fundamental ways were we able to address that. That has to be, we as a country have to do that. But I want to get back to you. you so you went to Yale um, and uh, I read that. Uh, when you, you, what you were struck by was how um, you said there were kids at Yale who used drugs with impunity and then there were kids in the inner city who, who whose lives were ruined uh, in the criminal justice system because of this. This led you back to California to work on these issues? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. You know, uh, if, if a kid got caught doing drugs at Yale, they went to rehab. Uh, the kid got caught doing drugs three blocks away. Same age kid in New Haven, in yeah. New Haven, Connecticut. You know, which you know, kind of a down on your luck town. Uh, they went to prison, and nobody thought that was weird. Now I didn't. I've never done any drugs to this day. So to me, it's all the same stuff. You know, Jesus sees all you guys. You know, you're all going to hell, uh, from my point of view. Uh, at that time in my life, so um, it was it was that was heartbreaking. And then we had Rodney King. I was in law school from ninety to ninety three. Rodney King was uh, April. Um, 1992. Um, beaten by yeah, police in L.A. Yeah, exactly. African American motorist. that was beaten by cops, and then the, uh, uh, an all white jury said no problem with the with that beating, even though it had been videotaped. And so, um, April 29th, 1992, L.A. goes up in flames, and I'm saying, look, this is, this is liberty and justice for all. Like this is what my dad told me. I mean, so I went to the left side of Pluto. I mean, I was as far left as you could possibly be for a good ten years after that. And, Did um, you know when you went to Yale that you wanted to use your law degree in some way around these civil rights issues? And absolutely. Human, yeah. Absolutely. And, and frankly, nobody goes there planning to be a corporate attorney and come out civil rights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you go to law school, uh, if you come out public interest, it's because you went in public interest because most even the public interest kids wind up going corporate. But no, I mean, I went only because I didn't know what else to do. I wanted to do something for civil rights. Um, I had been working as a journalist. Um, I, I was an independent publisher this was before the internet. I probably would have had a you know website or something. But um, I, I published a statewide African American newspaper that I started. I had a because you you started off thinking you were going to be a journalist. Absolutely, because you know, frankly, everybody who knows me from when I was a kid is just stunned that I have anything to say at all. <laughs> because I have a twin sister who is much smarter than I am much bigger personality than I have and talked all the time. 
So for the probably the first fifteen years of my maybe life, maybe you couldn't get a word in his. I, I, hey, listen, I, I what she? What does she do now? She's a social worker in my home county. Uh-huh. Um, she's got two grown kids now. Um, but when we were kids, I mean, I think probably the first fifteen years of my life, not a, I'd, if a relative heard me talk, I'm not sure they heard me talk twice. Huh. And so, and I was just a complete nerd, and my sister was this massive star, and um, you know, she actually was the one who filled out my paperwork to get me into college and all this sort of stuff. And uh, but I loved reading. I loved comic books. I loved action figures. My dad, what's that boy doing there playing with them dolls? You know, <laughs> like, daddy, they're action figures. He's like, oh my god. So, um, you know, so I. Uh, uh, I love reading. I love writing. I love words. And so I, I, I went to the University of Tennessee at Martin. I was a communications major. I worked on a student newspaper there, but I also published an independent newspaper, um, underground paper on my own campus, and then another one on my girlfriend's campus at Vanderbilt, and then a statewide African-American publication that was, I think, on 17 campuses. This is all by the time I was 20. So I was you know, very much wanting to... Um, be a, a journalist, but then in summer of '89, I went to Shreveport, Louisiana, and I was doing the oil bust down there. And I worked for the Shreveport, Louisiana newspaper as a graphic artist intern. And I just, saw, you know, when you grow up in a small town in the South, your parents steer you, so you see, don't see certain things. You just, you're only going to safe places, pretty much. But I didn't know my where I was supposed to be or not be in Shreveport, and I saw a lot of poverty. And a lot of racism. When I came back to my campus, I said, "You know what? I want to go to law school. I, I think being a part of the media is just going to make things worse because I have to like cover stories in a way that I don't believe in." And so, luckily, just completely randomly, there was a professor on the campus named Ted Mosh. I had another professor named uh, Gerald Og, and they both, you know, white professors, um, conservative professors. Um, but they both believed that I could go to a, a top school. And, uh, you know, I had great grades. I was involved in everything. And, you know, I, I crushed the LSAT. And suddenly I'm accepted to Yale and Harvard and all these places. And I'll tell you, when I get there, I was just considered garbage. Like, who let this guy in here? This is by the black students. They were like, you know, these kids had gone to Stanford and Brown and all these schools. And here comes this guy from rural West Tennessee, doesn't know anything, doesn't understand the references, doesn't get the joke, you know, country and somewhat obnoxious. And it was it was a massive culture clash. And um, and suddenly I understood my father like that class divide that he had encountered in the black community going from Orange Mound to being a, an educator and married to a college president's daughter, suddenly here I am, his son, going from you know, middle class in the South, which means you know $50,000 a year or something like that, to Yale. And that sense of the snobbery and how the coastal elite looks at the rest of the country is something if you grow up in the country, you can smell it at a thousand yards. And that's a big part of the liberals' problem, is that the NPR crowd, just they reflexively just look down on red state voters, that they're all the dumb. The deplorables. Exactly, that they're all stupid, um, and, that, and that the people on the coast are smart. And that is almost baked into the DNA, that they're smart and we're dumb. And... It, it it doesn't work. Did you learn from that experience? Obviously, you were confronted with you. You, you just said with a, a different group of people. You had to m- sort of mediate through that yeah. in some way. Uh, what did you learn about how to how to deal with uh, different I, sorts of people? I, I learned just ask a ton of questions and be stupid on the front end and get it out of the way. Just get out of the way. Just ask every dumb question you can. You learn that. Learn you learn that as a reporter, of course. Yes. Because when you're a reporter and you try to fake it, your editor is going to ask you three questions. And you're going to look like an idiot. But I use those reporting skills. And I just listen. I, I sat down first day at Yale. I go down to the go to the black table because you know that that happens a lot of these schools. And I'm like, okay, at least I can fit in here. I sit down, and somebody uses in the same sentence the word paradigmatic and egalitarian, <laughs> two words I'd never heard of. 
I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. And I said, well, what, what does that mean, egalitarian? And the whole table looks at me like I'm, you know, complete lunatic. Like, and then, you know, paradigmatic, you know, like of a paradigm. I'm like, what's a paradigm? I don't I, – Well, it's, it's also probably true that elites – like to say egalitarianism, but they don't necessarily like to practice it. <laughs> exactly. Good so, point, sir. Yeah. So that, that that was my first kind of experience. Like, wow, like, okay. But here's what I knew, and I figured it out pretty quickly. I said, I'm behind. I'm behind. I went to public schools all the way, church every other Sunday. These kids of you know, Andover, Oxford, I'm behind. But I'm only behind because they've read more books than I have. If I work twice as hard as them, I can catch up and I will know everything that they know, but they will never know the things I know. And so I just said, you know what? Let's go. And by the time I graduated, uh, you could ask anybody I went to school with, you know, I was right there, you know, with with the best of them. But, um, you know, I got that kind of confidence from my dad. You know, my dad had to bust through so many barriers and barricades um, that when I would call him and complain about stuff, he'd say, hmm, they're putting dogs on you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So there's, um, there's a bad way to have a chip on your shoulder, and there's a good way to have yeah. a chip on your shoulder. Yeah. That's the good way to have a chip on your shoulder. We're going to take a, another quick break. We'll be back with Van Jones. So you went out to the coast. And you, you know, what interests me about you is that you've had different chapters in your life uh, of activism. And the first chapter had to do with police community relations, something you've been working on now for 20 years. Yeah, more. Yeah. In fact, I'm the only I'm the only person in the United States, uh, I believe, and I don't believe I know I'm just being falsely modest. I'm the only person in the United States ever to get an international human rights award for dealing with uh, police abuse in the U.S. Um, in 1998, Reebok gave me the International Human Rights Award uh, for um, a case I did getting uh, a very abusive police officer off the SFPD, a guy who had uh, beaten and stomped and pepper sprayed to death one black guy and then sh- and prior to that had shot to death another unarmed uh, black guy. Um, Jerry Stansel in the shooting case and um, um, Aaron Williams in the beating mm-hmm. case. And um, so I basically mobilized every, you know, first you know young person and then preachers and then finally the whole city to get this cop uh, fired. And um, suddenly I wind up with this International Human Rights Award. Carrie Kennedy, um, one of Bobby Kennedy's uh, mm-hmm. daughters, was a part of uh, that Human Rights Award Committee. She took me under the wing. I meet Ariana Huffington, and my whole life changed. Um, uh, and I was able to then raise enough money to grow a whole human rights center, the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, where we ultimately went on to stop Oakland from building a super jail for kids. We helped California close five youth prisons. Um, you know, when a, a very successful run as a criminal justice reformer back long before those issues were considered kind of in vogue. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it's, it strikes... I, I was talking about the fact that uh, the first story I ever wrote uh, for when I was a young journalist, when I was 18 years old, was about police community uh, relations, really the battle between a congressman in, uh, in Chicago and Mayor Daley, the, the first, over police brutality 43 years ago. And um, we're still grappling with those issues today, though, you know, I, and then you can speak to this. It strikes me that these issues aren't new. What's new is that everybody's aware of them. It's a technology. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, one of the most remarkable things I ever saw was uh, when that uh, young woman, having seen her boyfriend shot in the car with her, yes, starts live streaming his uh, peril and her fear and basically pulls the entire planet into her car. Um, she, you know, she didn't have to ask Walter Cronkite's permission or get a publisher to help her publish her memoir about it or get someone to believe it. She literally just starts live streaming, and the entire world's in her car. Um, that is one of the um, uh, more promising, uh, if more shocking, uh, 
things, you know, people, but then what you realize is you can show somebody the same picture and they see something totally different. And so uh, it's been, I think, more frustrating for African-Americans, at least the ones who care about these issues, that, you know, same with Rodney King all over again, 1992. You show African-Americans a certain image of a white officer interacting with a black person. You show uh, all too often a white person the same image and everybody's filters jump in. And if you automatically assume that African-Americans are probably more of a threat, um, if you go, a black guy is knocking on my door. If that seems, if that seems scarier than a white guy is knocking on my door, that's your kind of basic default, then, well, whatever the cop does seems a little bit more understandable. If a black guy is knocking on your door means it's my son's come home, <laughs> then the same scene looks very different. And so that's going to be part of this problem is that we don't just acknowledge that we all have these biases. I think I think Dr. King has done such a good job. He's almost overdone the job. Now nobody wants to be seen as biased in any way, even though it's impossible right. for the human mind not to have these, not to jump to certain conclusions because the human mind is, you know, is an infinite. It's a finite little glob of matter that's got to take some shortcuts. Just how the brain works, and those shortcuts can sometimes be unfair. But if you can't even admit to having them. We'll never have an honest conversation, and that's where we're now. I've been on TV, I've been on CNN four years, and every time a cop uh, shoots a, an unarmed black person, literally, you could just have a, 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 a what do you call it, one of those virtual images of me. I'm going to say the same thing that people notice that we're just talking past each other on race, especially when on this topic. And I wish that we could have a deeper conversation just about subjective bias. By the way, um, I think Hillary Clinton said something about implicit bias. And the whole world on the right, all they heard was bias. But what she was saying, implicit, in other words, innocent bias. Like, not, you know, you hate black people or you hate women or whatever. You hate white people. But the implicit, the, the subjective, the unconscious, the unknown, the innocent bias that can sometimes have very bad consequences. I think we should just call it innocent bias. And this is... Uh I mean, this is important both ways in in this relationship between police and community because some of the communities in which this is, in which these incidents are most prevalent, are also communities that have problems with crime and Absolutely. need uh, need good policing. But uh, it has to be done respectfully. Let Let me ask you: you you how how does one move from that issue to environmentalism? I burned out. Um, you know, you go to if you uh, you know if you do serious work in an urban environment with tough constituencies, you go to a lot of funerals. Um, you go to a lot of funerals. You go to a lot of coalition meetings that dissolve into bitterness and conflict and acrimony. Um, you eat a lot of burritos and bad food. <laughs> Um, not the burritos are always bad, but the way I eat them, they're bad. And I just burned out. Like I, I mean, literally, my hands would, be, would 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 just shake. Um, I couldn't sleep, and I just needed to try to get my, my health under control. And so I started going. Uh, I, I had a, a girlfriend at the time. And luckily, she broke up with me and went on. Now she's married and happy. But at the time, I, while I was making her miserable, she said, "Why don't you go to one of these retreat centers over there in, in Marin County?" And just take a break. And the idea of taking a break just struck me as bizarre. Like, I just worked all the time. And um, I started getting healthier just being, you know, focused on that, basically. But I also noticed that these different places I was going to, you know, they got organic food. They've got solar panels. They've got hybrid cars. They've got salads. They've got all this stuff you don't (laughs) see in Oakland. You know what I mean? And I'm like, what the heck is this? And so I just said, look, we need green jobs, not jails. Um, in Oakland, I said, you know, we just passed all this solar stuff. I said, there's going to be all these industries getting started. I saw the entire clean energy thing as just a big industry, a big money play, a big opportunity for jobs and contracts and entrepreneurship. And I said, geez, you know, we can fight pollution and poverty at the same time if we just connect Marin County to Oakland. Similarly, with Silicon Valley, if you can connect Oakland to Silicon Valley, you can do a lot. You can, get, you can tap that genius of incredibly creative kids. So in now you're doing this coding. Yeah. Yes, we code. You know, Prince, uh, the rock star, 
uh, when I left the White House, reached out to me, and we wound up doing a bunch of great stuff together, including this coding initiative. But so, I, so I worked on prisons for a long time, uh, youth violence, criminal justice, juvenile justice, burned out on that, stayed attached to the organization, the Yellow Baker Center, but started a new initiative on green jobs, which became Green for All. And the long story short of that is that we got the Oakland City Council to create a green jobs core of 15, 20 kids, get them trained to put up solar panels. Nancy Pelosi found out about that. And then she thought it was great and took me to Washington, D.C. George W. Bush winds up signing a bill called the Green Jobs Act 2007, part of the 2007 Energy Bill, um, to spread that program around the country. Then I got a book contract, wrote a book about it, boom. You know, the interesting thing about it is you weren't always – that fond of George W. Bush? No, not you at all. had some. You had some very harsh words for George W. Bush. Yes, um, over the war uh, and some of his policies, and then he signed this bill. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a parable there. Not that you were wrong, mm-hmm. but that you can disagree and disagree strongly on some things and still work together on other things. Isn't that the whole point? I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, one of the most remarkable things is, you know, after, uh, you know, my book comes out, uh, The Green Collar Economy, I become the first African-American environmentalist ever to have a bestseller. The book gets published in six languages. It's used in uh, 100 U.S. universities. And, um, you know, I wind up in the the White House. You know, after I left... um, you know, I taught at Princeton for a while, put out another book, wind up on CNN. Newt Gingrich and I wind up on a TV show together called Crossfire for about a year. Well, Newt and I disagree on pretty much everything. There's almost nothing we agree on. But I have such tremendous respect for him and for his ability to, you know, cap- I mean, we're living still in Newt's world with, you know, Republican Congress, all sort of stuff. Um, you, know, we've, you know, we've gotten it back a couple times, but, I mean, the idea that you could ever have a Republican House was completely, you know, for 30 years, that wasn't even a good consideration. So... You expect him, by the way, to be in the administration? I, I bet he will be. I hope mm-hmm. he will be. Um, so... Does that give you hope? Absolutely. Absolutely. Newton and I have a different politics of the head, but we have a similar politics of the heart in that he really cares about uh, the underdog and his own conception of it. I have a different... But he, he doesn't like those big government bureaucracies. I don't like those big corporations. But... There's, there's something in there that's kind of in harmony with my view, and he hates poverty. He hates poverty. He believes in opportunity. So, um, you know, that, that's an important thing. But my only point is that even though we disagree on 99 things, the one thing we do agree on is that the criminal justice system has gotten completely out of control. It's the, according to Newt, it's a big, failed government bureaucracy. Yeah, this is something that unites the left and the right. Yeah. And Newt and I were, I think, two of the first people to really get out there loud and proud, banging the gong on that in the in the most recent period. You know, people have been doing it for a long time, but in the most recent period, kind of banging the gong on that, trying to get as uh, trying to make the water safe for everybody to get in. And um, and to me, that's the whole point: is that um, you should be willing to work with or against anybody on a, on your idea. So if you have an idea about criminal justice reform, and you can work with Coke Industries on that, um, we have and we do. At the same time, the environmental work I do, we work against Coke Industries. So mm-hmm. I'm literally sometimes I'm on a phone call with Mark uh, Holden from yeah, Coke Industries. He's done a lot of work on criminal, on criminal justice. justice. And I'll literally say, okay, look, i got to hang up the phone because i got to my next call and figure out how to beat you <laughs> on the environmental side. And he laughs and I laugh. Yeah. That's how it's supposed to be. It is, it is the way it's supposed to be. Let me talk briefly about your White House tenure, which was brief. Yes. Um, Tell me what your perception of that. You work for the Council uh, on uh, Environmental Quality. Uh, I I became aware of you when I was a senior advisor to the president, uh, and you became sort of a thing on in in the right wing media and on Fox and so on. What happened Mm -hmm. from your perspective? Well, um, I was yeah, I was. Special advisor in there working. Main, my main job was working on the green job stuff. Um, you know, that we had $787 billion stimulus package, as you remember, recovery package, we called it. And $80 billion of those bucks were for green and clean stuff. 
you know, $10 billion for smart batteries, $10 billion for yeah. solar. I mean, big numbers. Seed money, really, for yeah, the renewable jumps, energy future. Exactly. But there was nobody uh, who could coordinate all that um, because it was, you know, it was a bunch of money fired through existing legislation, existing agencies. So my job was basically just to try to coordinate all that stuff and uh, working with the vice president's office, et cetera. So I was doing that and, you know, uh, off, I would, I would uh, the, uh, work with the DOE to get on the radio and call into right-wing radio. So I said, please let me talk to the right because I do very well with right-wingers. Please let me talk to the right. Get on the phone with, the, with uh, you know, oh, we're going to have, you know, the President Obama's environmental uh, advisor is going to be on after this break. We'll see what he has to say. You know, and then come back in. I would go right after him. Cause they expect, I'm going to talk about bunnies and trees and polar bears. I would go right at him. I'd say, I'd, the first thing I want to ask you, why do you want China to right. beat the United States on the clean energy revolution when American technology is solar, wind energy is American technology, smart bears is American? Why do you want China to or beat us? Or be mortgaged to Middle Eastern oil. Yeah, exactly. So I would go right out on the patriotism stuff, the national pride mm-hmm. stuff, and I win them over. Like, people, oh, you know, we haven't thought about it that way. So... Um, all of a sudden, Glenn Beck goes on Fox and calls the president a racist. Not the highest moment in American you know, civility. Uh, the, I the, think even he acknowledges that. Exactly, now. yeah. But, I mean, nobody of his stature even called Reagan a racist on national television. Um, and so an organization I had helped start called colorofchange.org launched a petition to get him off the air, which ultimately succeeded. But along the way, Glenn Beck says, well, who does this color change stuff? Looks up, finds out that I used to be a part of it, and now I'm in the White House. So he says, oh, President Obama is a conspiracy guy. President Obama is coordinating this attack on me through this guy, Van Jones. I'm going to go after Van Jones. So he does like 14 uh, shows almost in a row, uh, you know, going through my left-wing radical past, which I am loud and proud about. And anybody who knows me knows that's a big part of my past before I had my burnout and became a dad and calmed down and uh, it just became too much of a of an issue and you know my view about it was uh, you know if you uh, you know you go to protect and serve the president you don't go for the president to protect and serve you and you go to fight for other people's job not for your own so once you become the issue you should resign so I resigned as you well remember and um, you know it was tough it was probably the toughest thing I'd gone through my dad had just died the year before um, and then suddenly I'm in and out of, you know, the best job I could imagine for myself. And um, uh, it was tough. So let me ask you this. Um, I've sat across the panel from you for a year and a half. Uh, I have maximum high regard for you. I always stop and listen when you speak because I know you're going to speak with, with, with wisdom and passion. And... Uh, and I'm always looking for leaders, right? So my question to you is, why aren't you running for public office? Well, you know, the last time I was in public office, it didn't work out too good. <laughs> that was not yeah, that's fun. different, though. This yeah, is yeah. different. But, you mm-hmm. know, you live in California mm-hmm. where uh, your, your, uh, you know, your past is probably a plus <laughs> and not a minus. Uh, certainly if I lived in the Bay Area still, and, that's for sure. Um, uh, I just I ask you that because it seems to me we so desperately need talented, passionate people to lean in now and not lean out. As I said earlier, mm-hmm. uh, is that something that you would consider? Uh, let's assume that your wife isn't listening to this podcast. Yeah. You know, I just don't think it's what I would be best in the world at. I think I'm a great communicator. Um, I'm a good I'm good at finding stories. I think I, I think I'm actually kind of isn't that part of a leader's job though is to tell the story of wh- where we are and where we're going and to bring to life the story of people. Look, I, I look, I, I agree, and I I, um, I just think that this whole podcast was a recruitment, kind of thing, so. <laughs> and it's going to be a failure. But um, <laughs> but you know, look, I, it's it's it, look, first of all for for David Axelrod to say that you, know, you should be in public services is like if I consider a, myself a high level well, scout. Yeah, exactly. Well, if there's a bigger honor in public life. I don't know what it is. So I appreciate that. But um, look, honestly, I think that I think that people who haven't served in public office should. It's an incredible experience. You learn so much. Um, but I think that, you know, look, I'll put it this way. For the next 10 to 15 years, what I want to be able to do is to figure out a way to bridge some of these divides and to do it 
um, you know, using media, using convenings, using all these different tools, and to make it possible for the people who are in office to do a good job. I don't think, I disagree with a lot of people's view that we have, you know, dumb, mean, greedy people in office. I think we have a system that makes it impossible for good people to do good work. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, and I, listen, Tulsi Gabbard, that young uh, veteran Hawaiian vet from Hawaii, I think she's great, top-notch. Kamala Harris going to the Senate out of California. These, I mean, listen, if, if these folks can't get great stuff done, I got no shot because these people are just extraordinary human beings in every way and have done way more than I will ever do. And so I want to figure out some way, you know, Donald Trump talks about, you know, draining the swamp. I want to, you know, detox, de- you know, detoxify some of the surroundings for folks so that so people who really feel the call to, to serve in office can do a good job. You know, listen, if I'm 75 years old and, you know, however old Bernie is, you know what I mean? Like you know, Somebody wants me to run for mayor. Your governor out there is uh, up there in Yeah, years. exactly. So if somebody wants me to run for dog catcher in, in Oakland at 75, I might consider it. But in the meantime, I think, you know, the best thing I can do, if we can just reduce the inflammation, and it's tough because I am a, a strong liberal. And I think the key now is um, the new bipartisanship will be the bipartisanship of the wings. I think that the the left wing of our party is stronger than the moderates now, and I think the right wing of the Republican Party is stronger than the moderates. So the bipartisanship will be, be will be the bipartisanship of the wings, and I think I, I can play a role in that. At least um, I, I want I want to try. Well, listen, uh, there isn't a more worthy pursuit, and there isn't a more worthy guy to have on this podcast the day after the world changed a little, yeah. or and maybe a lot. Yeah. So, uh, Van Jones, I appreciate you as a, as a colleague, and I appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Thank you.